presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Better than I deserve, a second look at the grace of God. And today I've entitled our session, Grace Before Time. And we know what grace is. It's the unmerited favor of God. It's something that we can't earn. It clearly is something that we don't deserve. In fact, we ought to, uh, it'd probably be a good idea to get on our knees and on our faces every morning and say, thank you, Jesus, for not giving me what I deserve. Because we've been, the last few weeks, we've been looking at our condition, what's happened to us, how we fell into sin there in the garden, and uh, that, that is our primeval parents, and as a result of that, how that original sin has been passed on to us. So if God were to give us what we deserve, it would just be uh, death, judgment, condemnation, and uh, ultimate separation from himself because that's because of our sin that's what we deserve that's not a popular message today but it's a true message um, <clears throat> i wanted to share just one thing with you before we really get into the lesson and i did put it in your notes uh about some philosophical views uh, regarding man because this is and the reason i bring this up is because this whole thing of what i deserve is really tough to deal with because there's something about thinking that well you know now why 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 would God create us and then why would all this stuff you talk about hell and judgment and all that kind of stuff just just doesn't quite seem right there is uh, there's one there are a number of views of men one of them is that I put in your notes here is the is idealistic anthropology that is uh, it has to do that with the fact that there's a real emphasis on the, the spirit or the soul in the spirit. This is what you see in, uh, in particularly in, uh, in ancient Greek philosophy. For example, you remember Socrates uh, got the folks all excited where he was living at the time and as a result had to drink the potion of hemlock. And when he drank it, his disciples, his followers were upset. That would have certainly included uh, Plato and, and many others of his disciples. And one of the things that Socrates said was that he didn't have a problem with that. In fact, one of the things that the Greeks uh, believed in was what was known as dualism. That is that the body is totally evil and that the spirit is totally good. And they welcomed the time when the two would be separated. And that was Socrates' attitude. In fact, if you look in your notes in that right-hand column, the very first passage up there from Acts 17, this uh, Paul was preaching in Athens. Now, this is not Athens, Georgia, where the George Bulldogs are. This is Athens, Greece. And if you look at it carefully, you, you see at least a little bit of what I'm talking about. Notice Paul is preaching, and he says in Acts 17:29. But now God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he, that is God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. 
All right, so what's he doing? He's, he's been communicating the gospel. Now notice the response of some of these Greeks. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, well, we want to hear you again on this subject. But even today in contemporary, many contemporary Eastern religions, there's a real emphasis on the spirit but not on the body. And what we see is in Christianity, there's an emphasis on both. That when God saves us, when He invades our life and He makes us new creations, He gives us a new spirit right then. He enlivens our spirit. One day we will die and we'll either be cremated or our bodies will be laid in the ground or whatever. And then there comes a day of resurrection in which that body is brought back to life and that new body is put back together with that new spirit that we are. And uh, so there's an emphasis on both in Christianity. Uh, another uh, view is that of materialistic anthropology. It takes just the opposite view, and that is it puts no, uh, no emphasis on the spiritual at all. In fact, to a large extent, it even denies the spiritual. Uh, Karl Marx is a good example of that. Uh, B.F. Skinner uh, said, if you can't see it, you can't measure it. He was, a, he was a behaviorist. Notice the passage there from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now we know that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, but it was written with a particular view, and the view is that, you know, everything is just hopeless. All there really is is just what you can see. It's kind of just the opposite of that Greek view we were talking about. Notice in Ecclesiastes 3, beginning at verse 18, Solomon wrote, I also thought man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. Talking about the grave. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Notice, uh, Solomon, in the condition he was in, or writing from the viewpoint that he wrote from at that time, was talking about the futility of life, the meaningless of life, meaninglessness of life. All there is is what you can see. Nobody can be sure about the spiritual aspect. That's, that's, that's kind of the view there. So you've got this... You've got this idealistic view that the Greeks held of, of man, mankind. You've got this, this more materialistic view that people like Skinner and Marx have held, and many people hold today. And then there's Christian anthropology where there's an emphasis on the whole being, that God is interested in every aspect of us, that when God made, it, made us, uh, we are totally dependent on Him as creatures for uh, the breath that we breathe, uh, for the life that we have, but at the same time, God has given us a certain amount of freedom, and with that freedom comes responsibility. Now, we're not totally free, and we'll, we'll see that in the, in, the, in the weeks to come. Notice, the, again, the passages, and these are very familiar from Genesis 1 and 2, where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them rule over all the creatures. So here... Here is the human being as a person who certainly possesses responsibilities. Remember, God made uh, the man and the woman, as it were, sort of uh, uh, 
in charge, really, of what, uh, what was going on on the earth under God Himself. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in, uh, in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Remember, they weren't on their own. God didn't put them in there and say, okay, I'll check with you all later. No, every, it seemed like every evening God would come and, and visit with them there in the garden in the cool of the day. So they weren't on their own. They were under the authority of God, and yet they themselves had authority. And they had uh, privileges, but they also had a responsibility, and there was only one constraint, and that constraint was what? Don't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know that they did that. But what we see there in the garden is that human beings were able not to sin. They were able not to sin. But of course, we know what happened, and that is what? They did sin. That's right. And that's what, that's what Genesis 3 is all about. And after they sinned, and, and we've spent at least a couple of weeks talking about that, so I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But after, talk, after, after that sin, we know that the image of God, they were made in the image of God, and that image was not eradicated, but that image was distorted. That image was marred. It's kind of like looking in the funny mirrors. We talked about that. Uh, you could tell something about it, but... It just—it was not a true reflection because sin had uh, had distorted that reflection. What we call that—that—that—that uh, that, that, that sin is passed on from generation to generation. Notice again uh, the passage from Romans chapter five, verse twelve. It says, "Therefore, Paul is making his argument in terms of uh, justification." And he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, who was that one man? Adam. And death through sin, in other words, sin came in, death followed on sin's heels. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So there were universal repercussions. And the fact that there is sin in the world today goes back to the Garden of Eden and it's, it's like there's something happened to the spiritual genetics of Adam and Eve, and as a result, their offspring, just like us and our offspring, have sin within us. We all have the sinful nature. In fact, the only person who was ever born in, uh, since the time of Adam and Eve that did not have a sinful nature, had a human nature, but not a sinful nature, was what person? was the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. Now, we know that, <clears throat> incidentally, uh, what happened as a result of this, this sin that came into being there, remember uh, God ran the man and the woman out of the garden lest they should put their hand, take, uh, take from the, uh, the tree of life and eat that fruit, and then they would have lived eternally with this sinful nature. But what we see now is that human beings are not able not to sin. In other words, we can't help ourselves. And that's one of the things, that's what we're going to begin to talk about today. 
and talk about it a little more and then see what God's remedy is for all that and in the course of discussing those things, talk about how God's grace fits into all of that. Notice what God, God's grace did there in the, uh, in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, the, the man and the woman, after having experienced guilt and shame, uh, the first thing they did was to clothe themselves with, uh, with their own clothing made out of uh, vegetation, out of fig leaves. And of course, they hid from God. But when God comes and He confronts them with their sin, and uh, after all the pronouncements of what's going to happen, then God does something really significant. It's not something that Adam and Eve asked for. It's not something that they even thought that they needed. But God knew that they needed it. And that is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The Lord God, notice that's that, that word Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Yahweh God, the Lord God, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Notice, they're passive in this. They didn't have it. They said, you know, I really don't like that outfit that you're making there, Lord. No. It says three really important words here that the Lord God made them. He made them. Just, and it's the same word that's used uh, for where the Lord God took the rib out of the man and made the woman. It's the idea of fashioning something. So here we see God as a tailor, as it were. And he tailored garments. Now what is a garment? It's clothing. Well, what does that say? It says that the clothing that they were wearing, the vegetation, was not adequate. It was, it was of their own making. And God says, no, you've sinned, so everything that you touch, even these garments that you made, are tainted with sin in some way. You see, that's, that's, that's what we call this, this ability, not able not to sin. We, we often, you'll, you'll often hear it referred to as, uh, as total, total depravity. Now that sounds awful. Sounds like some old lecherous person trying to offer some little kid a candy bar so they could do wicked things with him. But total depravity just simply means that every part of our personality is adversely affected by sin in some way. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we are, as we could be, but it does mean that every part of us is touched or tainted by sin. Very often, uh, uh, total depravity will sometimes be re referred to, and it's probably a, a really better expression, as radical corruption. Uh, if you have radical surgery, it means they take it all off. Radical corruption, it means the corruption that we have from sin is radical. It's permeated all of our being. That's, uh, again, doesn't mean we're as bad as, uh, as we could be. We can always get worse. Um, notice the passage from Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 10 through 13, because really what God did in the garden in clothing the man and the woman with the clothing that he made, out of, and notice it was, out, it, was, it was out of skin, which presupposes the death of a substitute somewhere. So that prefigured what Christ would do millennia from then uh, on the cross. Notice the passage from Hebrews 10, and notice the contrasts that are made here. Uh, the author writes, we have been made holy through the sacrifice, notice that's singular, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ 
once for all. That is once and, once and for all, once for all time. Now, he makes a contrast. Remember, when Hebrews was written, it was written probably somewhere around 60 to 62 A.D., and it's not until, uh, until several years later that the, uh, that the temple is destroyed there in Jerusalem. So even though Christ has gone to the cross, Judaism is still carrying on as though nothing has happened, and all of the Levitical priests at the time Hebrews is written are still going through all the motions that they had always gone through since the time of Moses when God gave the command to do all of this. Notice the contrast. Day after day, every priest, that is every Levitical priest, stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, notice plural, which can never take away sins. In fact, uh, the, the scriptures tell us that what those, the author of Hebrews tells us, that what all those repeated sacrifices did is they were a constant reminder of our sins. That, you know, the, the Jews, uh, uh, just uh, the Jewish people just celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And in the Old Testament economy on the Day of Atonement, that was, that was a very serious time in which one animal, a, a goat, would be slain and then there would be the scapegoat. The goat, uh, the, the old priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat and would confess all of the sins of himself and all of the nation of Israel. And then a man would take that goat out into the wilderness somewhere and turn it loose. And the goat would never be able to find its way back. And the first goat, the one that was slain, the one that was killed, the sacrifice, was a picture of Christ dying for sins. The goat who was taken away into the wilderness and, and turned loose alive, uh, never to be seen again, was a picture of Christ carrying away our sins. The Bible says He separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. But you see, the author here is saying all those sacrifices, they could never take away sins. They were a reminder of sins. But when this priest, that is Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Listen, there are no chairs in the, in, the, uh, in the tabernacle. That was not part of the furnishings. There was never a time in that, in that whole context that the priests ever sat down. There was always stuff to do. But notice, after Christ makes His sacrifice, what does He do? He sits. He sits at the right hand of the Father. Why does He sit? because His work is finished. There are no more sacrifices to offer. See, that's the argument, that's the point that the author of Hebrews is making. Now, what exactly happened to us, to all of us, as a result of, uh, of what Adam and Eve did in the, in, the, in the garden? And we see, I put that in your notes under this little section, the post-fall human condition, and I just want to look at this very briefly. We're not going to look at all of these verses, but I put them there so you can read them later if you like. The problem is that, you know, what God had said, He said, in the day that you eat this fruit, Adam, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. Now, did Adam die physically that day? No, it was 900 plus years later when he died. Or he was, at least he was that old. We're not sure about the time frame here, so I want to be very careful but he didn't die physically that day. Now his body began to corrupt. It began to age. But what he did do was he died spiritually. 
and that's what happens to us when you and I are born into this world. When, you know, when our mother gave birth to us, what said, oh, the baby's alive. How's the baby? Oh, the baby's doing great. Looks just like your Uncle Floyd or looks just like mom or just looks whatever. It's, and we're so glad because the baby's okay. Well, what we, some, what we fail to remember is that inside that little baby, as innocent as that baby looks, inside that baby beats the heart of a rebel. Because the Bible says that when we come into this world, we're born spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins. Notice just a few of the verses here. One's from Romans chapter 8, verse 7. What Paul writes about the sinful mind. The sinful mind. Remember, remember uh, <clears throat> part of the way we're made in the image of God. Part of the way that, uh, that, that 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 works itself out is that we are people uh, of, who have a, a mind. We're able to reason. Uh, we are people who are able to feel. We have emotions. We're able to. Uh, we are people who are able to uh, make choices. We're able to choose. That's not completely free, and we'll talk about that later. But because of sin, our reasoning has been adversely affected. Because of sin, our the the feelings that we experience and the way we use our feelings are adversely affected. We very often tend to try to manipulate people using our feelings. And the choices that we make are not always good choices. So notice what Paul says here in terms of, 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 of the mind, the, the way we reason. The sinful mind is hostile to God. Now what does hostile mean? Against it. The sinful mind is hostile to God. Notice what else it says. It does not submit to God's law, nor what? Nor can it do so. Notice, it's not just simply a matter of unwillingness on our part. It's a matter of spiritual inability. We, it's, yes, we will not, but we cannot. As we see, notice the next passage from 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The man without the Spirit, that's the unbeliever. The man without the Spirit, and this includes the ladies too, so don't feel left out, ladies. This is sort of a generic term here. The man, <clears throat> the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. How many of us in the past, uh, years ago when we were growing up, maybe we grew up in church, and we'd listen to the preaching going on, and we'd think, what in the world is that man ranting and raving about? This stuff doesn't make any sense to me. This is a bunch of foolishness. See, that's what he's saying. And notice, he cannot understand. Again, spiritual inability. Cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. And then one day, God in His grace and mercy invades our lives. He brings our old dead spirits to life. And all of a sudden, all this stuff that we've been hearing, what happens? It starts making sense. We see ourselves. We say, say, man, I guess I'm, I'm not all right like I thought I was. But I, I do need a Savior because I'm a sinner. And we realize that it's not do-it-yourself salvation, that the only way is through Christ. Now, how do we come to that conclusion? Well, it's because God opens our eyes to that. And when does He open our eyes? whenever He brings our old dead spirits to life. And we're, we're going to talk more about this. Don't worry. Romans 8, verse 8. Those controlled by the, 
sinful nature cannot, again, spiritual inability, cannot please God. And see, this is, this is what's happened to all of us. This is a universal kind of thing. So, when we look at all this, and I realize up to this point we've, we've had sort of a long review, but what is it that we deserve according to the Bible? Well, we deserve death, we deserve judgment, we deserve condemnation, we deserve ultimate, final separation from God. That's what we deserve. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands for how many would like to have that because I'd be waiting all day. Well, the great news is that God himself has done something about all this. Just as he did something about Adam and Eve's problem in the garden, so he has done something about this problem. And that's what I've entitled Grace Before Time. Remember, God, is gonna, God has a plan and a purpose for everything and everybody. Notice the passage. This is on page two of your notes. The passage from Isaiah chapter 14, verses 24 and 27. It says, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart Him? Now what does the word thwart mean? Yeah, change or somehow block or get in the way of, that kind of idea. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart Him? His hand is stretched out. And who can turn it back? Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that God, in planning things and purposing to do certain things, is God going to be able to carry out what He said He's going to do? Exactly, to the letter. Is there any of us that can get in the way to keep God from doing what God intends to do? And the answer is no, we cannot. Now, what's true in general terms is also true in specific terms as well, and we see that in terms of salvation. We see God's purposes uh, uh, in terms of His uh, providing. We'll talk about two things. His providing a Redeemer. What does the word redeem mean? To buy back. That's what Christ did for His people at the cross. He bought them back. We had been sold into the slavery, uh, into sin and slavery. And uh, so he redeems us. So some of you know, I think most everybody in this room is old enough to remember the old S&H Green Stamp store, where you'd go to the grocery store, or you man, you go all kind of places, and they would, you know, along with your purchase, they would give you just a truckload of green stamps, and you had all these little books, and you would try to, you would talk to children, you give them a piece of candy, so they would begin to salivate and then you'd get them to lick all those stamps and stick them in the books, and then you'd have about 14 boxes of books, and you'd take them to the S&H Redemption Center. What were you going to do? You are going to trade those in for something else. You were going to buy something. Well, that's what Christ does for His people. He, he brings us out of sin and the slavery to sin and takes us to be with Himself. We become His so the, we're going to be talking about that God has, has purposes in terms of a Redeemer, that he, uh, nothing caught God by surprise in the Garden of Eden, that He had already planned what He was going to do in terms of Redeemer, and also in return in terms of the redeemed. That's us. That's the people of God. Now let's see how this, uh, how this works out. Notice 
the passage in terms of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. The passage from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Incidentally, this is from the Living Bible. <clears throat> it says, God paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Now watch out. Now you, your socks may want to roll up and down here, Billy, so hang on. It says, God chose Him, that's Christ, God chose Him for this purpose long before the world began. But only recently was He brought into public view in these last days as a blessing to you. Notice, the, the, the coming of Christ was not an afterthought. You don't see the persons of the Godhead there in heaven scratching their heads, as it were, and wringing their hands in the next moment saying, oh my, look at what that man and woman did. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? There's none of that. Because it says that Christ, God chose Christ, the second person of the Godhead, for this purpose when? Long before the world began. So when what happened happened in the Garden of Eden, was God surprised? No. When God said, Adam, where are you? Was God trying to figure out which bush Adam was hiding behind? No, he knew exactly where Adam was. He knew where he was physically. He knew where he was spiritually. And he was confronting Adam with his sin. Notice the passage from Revelation 13, verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. This is the, this is the one that all the books, I guess, are being written about these days, the novels. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Notice, in the mind of God, the fact that Christ would go to the cross and die for the sins of all of His people was not something that God just came up afterwards and said, well, let's see, you know, looking at the other members of the Godhead, now fellas, how are we going to uh, work this one out? No. This was all planned. The fact that Christ would even come was planned before He even put the first star into space. And notice the passage from Acts chapter 4. Luke gives us a little view here of history. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. He, he looks back on the event of the cross and he says, Indeed, now Luke is, is the one who wrote this. It's Peter who's preaching. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, that's Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, what does that say? That's, now, does that say that God made Herod and made Pontius Pilate do what they did? Not at all. But what it does say is it says God took even the sin of Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the religious leaders there in Jerusalem, and used their sin to do what? To accomplish His purposes. God had a plan, and the plan was that Christ was going to go to the cross. John chapter 12 Remember, Jesus is talking about His coming demise. And uh, boy, His disciples are getting all upset. And He says, What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. But it was for this hour that I came into this world. 
That's John chapter 12, verse 7. It was for this hour that I came into this world. So, you see, even Christ has a purpose. Remember, it says He set His face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Nothing would dissuade Him. Why would He do that? Because that had been God's plan before He ever even put the first star in space. You say, man, that's pretty, that's pretty sharp. God can use even sin to accomplish His purposes. We all know that because we, we're all familiar with the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You remember when, when, when all is said and done and Joseph is finally reconciled, his brothers are reconciled to Joseph, he looks at his brothers and he says, when you did what you did, you meant evil against me. There's no question. It wasn't that you were having a bad day. It wasn't, yeah, I know I was a sassy teenager and I probably needed a few lumps, but he doesn't dismiss that. He doesn't excuse it. He said, when you did that, you meant evil against me. But what? But God meant it for good. See, God can use even the sin. He can use my sin, your sin, now, uh, in order to accomplish His purpose. Now, does that mean, oh, let's sin it up then and see what God does? No, Paul addresses that in Romans 6. What shall we say then? You know, shall sin increase that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, Paul addresses that real quickly. Notice, uh, yeah, notice the passage. Oh, yeah, we, we bet, I, I'm not going to take the time to go through that. Notice, okay, okay so God has, had already planned who He was going to send, the Redeemer. That's going to be the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. But what we also discover is God already planned about those who would be redeemed, that is, God's people. Notice the pas- there's several passages here I want us to look at. Notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved. You are kidding. Now that's what it says. So, well, this must be one of those verses that you just can't put much credence in. Well, we'll see if there's some other verses that say essentially the same thing. Because God... Because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. And then He not only... Now see, the, the end... Notice, the end itself is what? It's salvation. God has chosen you to be saved. But He tells us something else. He tells us that God has not only ordained the end, salvation, God has also ordained the means to the end. Notice, from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. How? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Now, God, God may save you, but He won't save you apart from the Gospel. You've got to believe the Gospel. And we're going to talk about how those two things come together. That's, that's one of the things we'll be talking about in detail next week. Notice the passage from Acts chapter 13, verses 46 and following. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them. Paul and Barnabas are in a place called Pisidian Antioch, and Paul is preaching here. And he, he answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, we now turn to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and yet everywhere he went, first place he always went when he went to a new city was where? A synagogue. He, he, he loved his own ethnic people. He loved the Jewish people. And he would go and preach there. 
And in this case, that's what he did here in Pisidian Antioch. And they rejected it. And he said, we now turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Now watch out. Here, here it comes. Pay close attention. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now the, the, the order of those words is very important. Notice, here's what it does not say. It does not say everyone who believed was appointed for eternal life. Doesn't say that, does it? Doesn't say that at all. That's, that's, that's not it. What does it say? It says all who were appointed for eternal life did what? Believe. Why did they believe? Because they were appointed for eternal life. I'm telling you, you better put rubber bands on your socks now. Notice the passage from John 10, from the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus answered, The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, You are not my sheep because you don't believe. He said, The reason that you don't believe is what? Because you're not my sheep. Now remember, there are two different kinds of sheep. There are lost sheep and they're found sheep. And if you're a lost sheep, God always finds all of his sheep. He never, if he's got, when he's got 100 in the fold, he never shows up with 99. If there's 99, they say, oh, Bradshaw's out wandering again. And he'll come and find you and bring you safely home. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Look at that little hymn up there in the right-hand corner of your, uh, on the right-hand side of your notes there. Uh, it's, a, it's a couple of stanzas from a very familiar hymn. I, at least I hope it's familiar. Grace greater than our sin. I'll be kind and not try to sing it for you, but you can sort of hum along if you want to. Uh, let me just read the first stanza and the chorus, and then I want us to make some comments about the fourth stanza. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Amen to that. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpour. Now, what is Calvary's mount? What is that a refer reference to? That's where Jesus died, right, Mount Calvary. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. A amen. But look at stanza four. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. Well, now, it depends on how you take that. Is it, do you have to believe and then it's freely bestowed on you? If it's going to be freely bestowed, it's going to have to be before you believe. Because otherwise, God is waiting for us to do something for Him to demonstrate His grace. And what does the word grace by definition mean? Unearned, unmerited. There's not anything that we can do for it. Don't worry, we're going to talk a lot about this. 
You that are longing to see His face, will you this moment His grace receive? Well, the mind is hostile toward God. Mind is not un- of the man, person without the Spirit does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Always will say no to God until God intervenes in our lives and changes us. Notice, uh, notice one other passage, and then we'll, uh, we'll begin to look at the summary down here. Notice the passage in the right hand column from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, and also verse 6. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He, the Father, chose us, believers, in Him, Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight, to the praise of His glorious grace, notice please about His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves, that is, in His Son. God planned salvation. God planned for us to be holy. In fact, let's just look at that next verse. Uh, Romans eight twenty nine, the Williams translation. For those on whom He, the Father, set His heart beforehand, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, there are some things we've said today that are disturbing things. And we're going to talk about these in detail. But today I want us to just look now, or this right now, to just look at the, the conclusion and uh, sort of draw what we've said together, I hope, to, uh, in some way. First of all, notice all human beings are spiritually DOA, dead on arrival when we're born into this world. Although there are vestiges of the image of God present in us, that image is distorted because every part of the human personality is tainted by sin. As we said, this is often referred to as total depravity or radical corruption. God's plan from all of eternity, and we have seen that clearly just in the few verses we've looked at already, was to call out a people for himself and remove their sins permanently and change them into the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus, welcoming them into his presence forever and all to the praise of his glory. The, the, The thing that God got in mind is glorifying himself by doing all of this. Again, God was not surprised by any of the events in the Garden of Eden. He had already planned for Christ Jesus to come He already had the people that he was going to redeem, among whom were Adam and Eve, uh, also chosen, as we shall see. Secondly, because all of us, all human beings, arrive in this world dead in trespasses and sins, uh, reconciliation with God has to be initiated by God. Now, why is that? Well, what's the definition of dead? If you go out here to Striffler Hamby, and you look in a coffin and you stand over that and say, if you just believe you can get out of there, you can get out of there. Is that person going to come out? Why not? Because they're dead. What is it that this person needs to get out of that coffin? Life. That's what we need. God initiates because God invades our life. He brings, breathes life into our dead souls and having done so, all of a sudden we come to life like Lazarus in the tomb 
We still smell like death, but there's life within us. And we see ourselves for the need that we have, and we see Christ for the Savior that He is. We have to be brought to life. A dead person does not express faith. A dead person does not repent. A dead person doesn't do any of those things. And that's what we're going to be talking about in detail in our next session. And then finally, thirdly, the grace and mercy that God demonstrates in saving His people from their sin is a vital part of His plan and purposes for all, from all eternity. Before the creation, God had already identified, He had already determined the identity of the Redeemer and those whom He would redeem. The believer in Christ is never a surprise. You know, God is not saying, boy, I tell you, I hope he's listening to that sermon up there today. Man alive, because if he doesn't, I, I just, I don't know what we're going to do. No, it's God who gives us ears to hear what's being said. And God has determined that his great salvation would be based solely on his own grace apart from any merit or even demerit of ours. Spiritually bankrupt, we have absolutely nothing to offer to God. Our salvation is in no way dependent upon us. It is dependent only on the grace and the mercy of our Lord. Now, you've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.